Hey, deserving listeners, just me today. I want to talk about the Stanford prison experiment and Philip Zimbardo, the lead psychologist on that experiment. That's what I'm going to talk about today. I've done a deep dive on it. The listeners will tell me that they want me to do deep dives. And so as a person who is always trying to please everyone around me, uh, I'm going to do that today with this episode. (laughs) Oh man, that sounds pathetic. Okay, so this is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am a professor and a therapist. Let's talk a little bit about Philip Zimbardo himself, his history. He was born in New York City in 1933. His parents were Sicilian immigrants, Italian immigrants. At the age of five, he almost died from whooping cough and was sequestered from the rest of his family and everyone else for six months. At the age of five, imagine that, just being in your own little sequestered prison for six months. It's got to be pretty rough at the age of five. He was alone for most of the day, most of the day and uh, nurses were uh, not allowed in the room for very long. His family was only allowed to visit him once a week. This has got to be a traumatic experience for him. I mean, six months in your own little whooping cough prison must have been terrible for him. As a child, he was beaten up because they thought he was Jewish. In New York, apparently, they beat up Jewish people, and so they um, beat him up because they thought he was Jewish. He didn't like psychology at first when he was in college because in Psych 101, he didn't like the class. It was taught very badly. And I can say I can really relate to this because when I was in college, I had the exact same experience. I took Psych 101 because it was a class you were supposed to take to uh, meet some human humanities requirement or something. And I hated the class. I thought it was really boring. In fact, I did a little experiment. I remember it was my second. So my first quarter at UW and at the university, I took uh, uh, classes that were respectable, you know, chemistry, mathematics, this kind of thing. And I worked really hard and I got a 4.0. And I, I remember assuming that I would have to work really hard just to get like a 3.0, a B. But I worked really hard and I got an A. And I was like, oh, I guess college isn't as hard as everyone. Because in high school, everyone was like, oh, man, when you go to college, it's, it's impossible. And then I went to college, worked hard, got an A. And I was like, it's, yeah, it's harder than high school, but it's not that hard. And so my second quarter, I thought, well, I, thought, well, I, I don't want to work too hard in college because I don't really care about my grades at this point. So... I wonder what sort of grade I would get if I just did nothing. And so in Psych 101, I didn't buy the book, I didn't attend class, and I just took the five Scantron tests that were every other week, and I got a (laughs) 2.7, mostly just guessing on the Scantron test. And so I was like, okay, if I do nothing, I get a 2.7, and if I try really hard, I get a 4.0. So how about I try ah, a little bit? And that's what I did. And I ended up graduating with a 3.0. But anyway, I hated Psych 101. It was taught, you know, badly. There was, a, there was literally a thousand people in the class with me. There's actually a classroom at UW that holds, I, th- I think it's a thousand people. But anyway, Kane, Kane was the building, I think. Anyway, okay. I don't, maybe it's torn down. That was years ago. Okay. Zimbardo. 
he didn't like psychology at first because Psych 101 was boring to him. Then he goes to Yale in the 50s, and he by now likes psychology, and he is researching sexual behavior of rats. The sexual behavior of rats. Sounds interesting. Later, he becomes a professor at Stanford, goes all the way to California, and he becomes a very popular teacher, and the students would line up uh, to sign up for his class because he was uh, a very dynamic teacher. If you've ever seen him uh, lecture, he, he, he is just that. He's very dynamic. He's very entertaining. He's pacing around. He's talking a lot. He's, he's, he's very compelling as, as an instructor. And he, and he speaks in a very relatable way. He doesn't speak in a super academic manner. He, he speaks in a way that you could understand. And he, does, he uh, got a nickname at this time, Mr. Psychology, he was called. Mr. Psychology. Uh, he would do the Stanford Prison Experiment in 1971, uh, which I'll get into in a second, and became quite well known for that. Published a lot of papers on shyness, published a lot of papers, gave a lot of talks on how evil can be uh, committed by good people. Um, he later became the president of the American Psychological Association in 2002. It's a big deal. Uh, I think you're elected to that position and, you know, it's a big, it's a big deal. So, um, he, he, his later life, he really wanted to increase the respect for psychology in our society. He wanted this, he wanted psych, our society to respect psychologists and he was worried about the image of psychology. In my opinion, he used the media really well compared to other psychologists. He seemed to know how to give a good interview. He seemed to know how to be one of those talking heads who knows how to provide interesting sound bites and that kind of thing. He also wanted to increase the diversity with the ethnic diversity within APA. And he uh, commented a lot after the Abu Ghraib prison incidents and after 9-11, because he was pretty involved with APA during that time. Okay, so 1971. We're going back in time. Philip Zimbardo is professor at Stanford, and he designs this, uh, this prison experiment. But just to give a little bit of background to the backdrop of this experiment. We have World War II in the 40s, and after World War II ends, we start, the Western world starts to learn that Nazi Germany was conducting horrific experiments on prisoners in the concentration camps, uh, mainly Jewish people. They were doing just terrible medical experiments and psychological experiments on them and, and would often result in the death of the participants of these experiments. And so many people were trying to get their head around the notion that an entire country could inflict terrible, the, the most horrific acts imaginable to millions and millions of people. The Western world was looking at Germany, and you have to remember, 
in the forties, a lot of Americans were of German uh, heritage. They, I think it might've been the, among any ethnic heritage, most, uh, the Germans was the most uh, predominant in the United States. Um, don't quote me on that, but, but there were a lot of Germans, in the United States, a lot of people of German descent. I mean, all you have to do is just go to the Midwest to Michigan and these areas, and you'll still see pretty strong remnants of that. But anyway, so Americans are, are looking at Nazis and they're thinking, how can an entire country uh, of presumably normal, good people do such terrible things to uh, other humans? I mean, how, how can this happen? It doesn't make any sense. It, it, it's scary to think about this happening. Are, what is it going to happen again? Are we going to see that in, in our country? How, why did this happen? How can we stop it from happening? So psychology really tried to tackle this. They really tried to figure out why an entire country or at least certain people within the country would participate willingly in terrible acts of, of, of uh, abuse and, and killing and genocide. Presumably, some of these people were psychopaths, and I think there were some famous examples of that. But percentage-wise, only a small percentage of those who committed the acts in Nazi Germany were actual psychopaths. The rest of them were, were not psychopaths. They were just like anyone else. So again, psychology starts to look into this. And in the 50s, I believe, or early 60s, no, it was probably 60s, sorry, the Milgram experiment comes out. And this is a, a very famous experiment in which they attempted to demonstrate that if an authority tells a good person to do something evil, they'll do it. And it, it involved sh uh, shocking another participant. Yeah, you can watch it on YouTube. But anyway, they, they thought that they had demonstrated that if a, an authority tells the, the study participant, so, you, so they had a guy in a white coat and they were like, in this study, you have to electrocute this other person. And uh, the, even though the electrocution was uh, getting worse and worse and worse over time, the person uh, often would continue electrocuting the other person. Not because the study participant was evil, but because presumably because the person in the white coat was telling him to do that. And therefore the person puts their morals aside and starts uh, is compliant with authority. So the idea is, is that in Nazi Germany, all those people were just following orders. They weren't actually evil. The, the orders were telling them to do all these terrible things. And so they put their morals aside and proceed to do all these terrible things. Well, then you have Philip Zimbardo, an, an up-and-coming professor at Stanford. And my guess is, and I've never heard any accounts or reports or comments on this, but I'm suspecting that Zimbardo, given his personality and his talents for, uh, I don't know, being charismatic, I think he wanted to design a study that would have as much if not more, of a big splash as the Milgram experiment did. I think he really wanted to make something that would really, you know, make his mark. And uh, there's a lot of signs of that. 
He filmed his experiment. He his experiment was really quite bold. He took a ton of risks. It was probably quite expensive. He uh, really wanted to, uh, you know, make something that was a big deal. And this is really common to a lot of scientific research. So I, I would say most researchers have in their mind, at least part of them are thinking, man, if when I publish this, this is going to make a big splash. People are really going to be interested in this. It That rarely happens. Most people could care less about the vast majority of different, I mean, or most studies get looked at sort of, you know, but there's very few studies that end up being a big splash. And so Zimbardo isn't very different in this way. But when you look at the the way he did this whole thing, it, it just seems like he was he was really looking for a, a stepping stone to greatness. <laughs> okay, so the questions that every research study has a central question or a, a set of central questions that the study is designed to answer. You know, if if you're trying to study what sort of wing design is best for a jumbo jet? You have this question. You say, what design, what wing design is, uh, provides the best uh, uh, miles per gallon, if that's a thing, <laughs> you know, the best um, fuel, uh, the, the least fuel consumption. So you set up, you know, and you experiment with a bunch of different wings for airplanes and you run a bunch of experiments and you, you answer that question, what is the best wing design? Okay, that's a simple way of putting it it's off the top of my head. But anyway, Zimbardo with this study, he wanted to know, what makes good people go wrong? He, he thought he had an hypothesis that good people could be seduced to do evil. And this, these are his words. For instance, these are, all, these are some quotes that he said. This is him reflecting back in, in subsequent interviews. I was interested in seeing what happens when you put good people in an evil place. I was interested in seeing what happens when you put good people in an evil place. Does the situation outside of you, the institution, come to control your behavior? Or does the things inside of you, your values, your attitudes, your morality, allow you to rise above a negative environment? So he's trying to figure out if an can can an institution override your values and morals, or do your values and morals rise above the institution and make it so that you won't do evil things? He wanted to prove that us Americans could be as evil as the Nazis if a person of authority told us to do bad things. That's what he wanted to prove. And I think it, it was a good question t- for a study. <clears throat> as we will see, the study design and the, the ethics involved were highly questionable, but let's, let's get into that. Okay. So Zimbardo gets his team of psychologists together and they design a study. And again, they have very loose ethical guideline following, very, very loose ethical considerations. And my, although I've never seen any direct evidence or data on this, my guess is, is that their study was not reviewed by an outside team. 
meaning that no one outside of Zimbardo and his team looked at his protocol to, to make sure that it was sound. Because if anyone did, they you know, overlooked a lot of things. So my guess is, is that no one did look at it. So they put an ad in the paper, and they said, for $15 a day, which is almost $100 in today's dollars, so for so for for a hundred dollar for almost a hundred dollars a day, they said we will uh, we'll pay you almost a hundred dollars a day for two weeks, and you will be a part of an experiment in which you'll be in a in a mock prison, a fake prison. We'll have to say, you know, if I saw that ad when I was in college, I would have jumped at that uh, quickly. A hundred bucks a day. I mean, that's a thousand. What is that? So that's a. Uh, two weeks, 14, that's, that's $1,400 for two weeks. And they did it during a vacation time during Stanford. So all the students were like, well, I'm not doing anything else. So man, yeah, sign me up. So a lot of people, a lot of guys signed up and uh, they screened all the people for quote unquote mental abnormalities. So all the psychologists met with each participant and made sure that none of them had any mental abnormality, which, you know, who knows how valid their measurements were there. And they asked each of the participants if if they wanted to be a prisoner or a guard. And all of them chose to be prisoners. Nobody wanted to be a guard. And they asked them why they, they didn't want to be guard. And they're like, well, I don't know. Being a guard seems like it's a lot of work. You know, being a prisoner... You don't have to do anything. You just have to sit there. <laughs> Being a guard, I'm sure, is like a job, and I don't want to do that. Or other people were like, ah, I'm not really the guard type. I'm not really a, an authoritative, kind of authoritarian kind of person, so I don't know if I want to do that. And other people were like, well, no one really likes guards, and so I don't want to be a jerk to people, so just make me a prisoner and that'll be okay. So what they did is they got all the different participants and common to other research designs. They just flipped a coin for each one of them to, to figure out whether or not they were going to be a prisoner or a guard. So it was random chance as to who became a prisoner or a guard. And then when they got the guards together, they pulled, you know, they pulled them into the office. They said, we chose you, you guards, because of the qualities we heard from our evaluation of you. So they lied to them and said, the reason why you're a guard is because you're the guard type, which, you know, wasn't true because they just flipped a coin. And Zimbardo is set up as the superintendent of the prison. So right away, we have a dual relationship there, but I'll get more into that later. But Zimbardo says to the guards, you know, he's essentially Zimbardo is the lead researcher and he's the lead guard in some ways. And he tells the guards, you have to maintain law and order, but you can't use physical force. So again, he tells the guards, you have to maintain law and order. You have to control the prisoners. You have to make sure that they don't do anything untoward. But you can't use physical force. So it's kind of a weird conundrum if you're a guard at that point. He gives 
the guards' uniforms. He wants, he's really adamant that the guards need to have those, those classic uniforms. And he gives them silver sunglasses so that the prisoners can't see their eyes, which he thought provided power over the guards. If you can't see someone's eyes, it, it means that you, it's hard to know what they're thinking or what they're looking at. So, you know, so far I would say, you know, pretty smart design, uh, but it quickly gets out of control in a second. But anyway, but let's take a break. And when we get back, we'll continue with the talk. So they converted the uh, Stanford psychology department basement into the prison and they used the teacher's offices as the jail cells. It's actually kind of interesting to see it. And actually, they made a movie about this recently with Ezra Miller. And I think they actually used the actual uh, place because it looked very similar to the actual place. But anyway, so here's an interesting little tidbit. They, uh, so they pull the guards in and they just say, okay, you're hired as a guard and here's your shift as the guard. You're the morning shift and you're the night shift and blah, blah, blah. So the guards got to go home after their shift. But the prisoners couldn't go home, obviously. And so to, to bring the prisoners in, they actually had police officers go to the home of the prisoners and actually arrest them in front of their friends and family. <laughs> so the police officers would show up at your house and handcuff you and bring you into the prison to simulate what it would be like to be brought into a jail. And they immediately start to strip the identities of the prisoners. They give them dresses to wear. Well, first off, they strip them naked, and then they de-louse them with de-lousing powder. And then they give them dresses. They take away, they make them wear these weird hats. They take away their identity. They say they don't have any names. They, they make them, they refer to them as a number, you know, very similar to the concentration camps in Nazi Germany. They feminize them, they humiliate them, and they take away their agency. So right away, the, the guards start doing that sort of thing. But at first, it's kind of tame, and most of it is just the design of the study. And meanwhile, it's all being videotaped and watched by Zimbardo and the other researchers, the other psychologists. Okay. So let's just check in for a second and question the validity of this study. So again, we got to go back to what question is he trying to answer? He's trying to prove or trying to ask the question that anyone can be made to do evil things if the institution instructs them to do so. And honestly, I don't think we need a lot of research studies to prove this because to demonstrate this phenomenon because this has happened time and time again throughout history. There are just thousands of examples in which if an authority tells a group of people that are underneath that authority to do evil things, they will do evil things. It, it's just happened throughout history. I mean, look at slavery. Look at the genocide of Native Americans in, a, in the United States. It, it, it happens all the time. And so... You know, so he's he's trying to concretize that in a little experiment, and you know it's fine. It's it's a fine question to ask, but the design. Let's look at the design of the study. 
in my opinion, it's not a valid measure. This study is not valid in terms of answering that question because the, the participants, the prisoners and the guards, they know they're being filmed and they know they're not actual prisoners and they know they're not actual guards. So, I mean, just imagine yourself. You get recruited into this study and you're being paid. That's a whole other thing. You're thinking, cha-ching, if I can just, you know, do a good job enough to, for these researchers, if I complete, essentially, the money is coming from Zimbardo. Zimbardo, you know, that's the perception. Zimbardo is going to give me $1,400 if I make him happy. And so what do I got to do to make Zimbardo happy? Well, right away, that's not a real prison. Prisons aren't like that. The, the prisoners and the guards aren't thinking, if I just perform well enough for the superintendent, I'm going to get paid this amount of money in two weeks. It's just, it's not, it's not valid in that way. Plus, the time, at the time, you know, the early 70s, late 60s, university students were notorious, particularly California university students, were notorious for hating authority. And they, the prisoners were probably determined to rebel and screw with the experiment because they wanted to save face. Again, they know they're being filmed, and they don't know where this film is going. And so it's like a little reality TV show. And, and it's sort of like saying the Kardashians are a, are a true example of what a family looks like. Well... No one thinks that because everyone knows that the the Kardashians know they're being filmed the entire time. And or Big Brother, that TV show is a valid example of what happens when people move in together. It's it's not. Everyone knows that the uh, participants on the on those shows, they know they're being filmed and they know that if they do something crazy, that people are going to react to it. Whereas in real life, that's not the case. So I personally don't think that this study actually shows anything. I think if anything, it just shows you what people will do under those circumstances of paying them and then, and then telling them to do the things that they, that they told them to do. <laughs> I think it's an example of how people will put on a show uh, rather than what an, actu- what an actual prison is like. But anyway. Also, it is a valid experiment if you're looking at in-group, out-group behavior, and it happens immediately. It's a classic in-group, out-group behavior study because you have this group of young men and you randomly assign them to different groups and you instantly start seeing the groups solidifying and hating the other group. It's, it's a very common social psychology effect, and it's been seen in many, many arguments. Uh, there are experiments where you get a group of kids together who don't know each other and you give one group red shoes and you give another group blue shoes. And that's the only thing you do different for them. And then you put them in a room and you tell them to interact. And eventually the blue shoes kids will hate the red shoes kids and the red shoes kids will, will prefer each other and hate the blue, the blue shoes kids, even though you just randomly assign them. So it has it the idea is is that when you're a part of a group it doesn't have anything to do with individual personalities or whether or not you in, empirically actually prefer your 
group or not. It's just like you're a part of that group. And so everything that happens, you will frame and distort in such a way that makes your group look good and makes the other group look bad. I mean, all you have to do is look at the election right now and just and see that all over the place. But anyway, so uh, another one that I saw actually recently with this in-group, out-group thing was I, I, I watched, I did this weird rabbit hole with regards to this this one YouTube video. It was a show in in the UK, I think. And as an experiment, it wasn't put on by psychologists. I think it was just put on by like a TV or a documentarian crew or something. And what they did is they they took uh, something like 11 or 9 uh, 11-year-olds. So it's, it's I think they were 11, somewhere around there, like 10 years old. And they took, they took about, I think, 9 of them, and they put them in a house, like a big house, two-story house with a yard. And they let them do whatever they wanted to while they filmed them for a week. So the kids were there without adult supervision. So these boys were there without, without adult supervision for a week and they, they could do whatever they wanted. They had food, they had, you know, games to play. There was paint that they could use and they immediately started so it starts off kind of nice. Everyone's kind of getting to know each other and nice. And then before long, it just very quickly within a, like a few hours, it just becomes complete chaos. But again, they know they're being filmed and they know it's going to be shown on TV. And so it's not a, again, not a valid. It, at the end, they were like, look what happens when boys are not monitored and supervised. And I'm like, uh, again, it's sort of a reality TV show. Um, but there was this moment where the, so there was, there were two different bedrooms and that the boys were supposed to sleep in. And one room had something like four boys and the other room had five boys. So there was one room that had just, just one more boy in the room than the other room. And what happened was the room with the five boys started bullying the room with the four boys and it got real nasty, like violent. So it's just that classic in-group, out-group. They were randomly put in one of the rooms, or they randomly assigned themselves to one of the rooms, and then proceeded to love the people in their room and hate the people in the other room, just out of the sheer fact that they were in a different room. So that happens all the time. Uh, and, and you see that happen in this experiment right away. You see the guards preferring each other, and deferring to each other and hating the prisoners and, and starting to talk shit about the prisoners. And you see the prisoners starting to prefer each other and starting to hate the guards. Okay, let's take a break. And when we get back, we'll continue. So pretty quickly, tension escalates between these two groups. And right away, the observers don't really know what to do. The psychologists are watching uh, on the camera and they're like, things aren't going so well. There seems to be some some potential violence happening between the the prisoners are starting to rebel and the guards are starting to get more aggressive. And so Zimbardo comes, comes back and the psychologists are like, I think we should end this experiment. I think, I think we should step in and tell them to calm down. This is, you know, we don't want anyone to get hurt, but Zimbardo says, no, don't step in. Don't tell the guards to lighten up. He, he, he wants, again, 
my guess is, is that Zimbardo wants there to be some big results in this study. And he's going to do everything to make sure that that happens. And if he tells the guards to cool it, it could be two weeks of just boring prison and guard interactions. Um, so he tells the guards, you know, hey, you got to get control. Uh, the prisoners are starting to rebel and you've got to, you know, you got to put your foot down. And so the guards start to increase their degradation because, again, they can't use physical force. They can only uh, use, a, they can put someone in the hole, which is this like isolated closet. It's just like a, a file cabinet closet that they would put uh, particularly bad prisoners in. But really, they couldn't do much more than that. And so they, the guards resorted to degradation and humiliation. They would make fun of their penis. And then this one sadistic guard, which I'm going to call sadistic guard, just to, they, they, they nicknamed him John Wayne because he was like John Wayne at the time, but I'm going to call him sadistic guard. In real life, he probably wasn't a sadist, but he had leanings, I think. Um, and here's a quote from him that he said afterwards uh, when he was you know, being interviewed after. He says, I arrived independently at the conclusion that this experiment must have, must have been put together to prove a point about prisons being a cruel and inhumane place, and therefore I would do my part to help those results come about. So right away, we see that some of the participants in the experiment are doing their own experiments. They're very aware of what's happening in the experiment, and they're starting to uh, try to steer the research uh, into a particular area. So the sadistic guard is like, oh, I, you know, I, I didn't really know what the study was about, but I was guessing it was about, it was, it was going to show you that prisons are really terrible places. And that isn't actually what the experiment was about, but that's what he thought. He thought, oh, this is, this is an, ex they're, they're filming us because they, they want to show that prisons are terrible and that prison should not be terrible. And so he thought it was his job to be a terrible, terrible human being to these prisoners to show that prisons are terrible. So right away you have an element in this experiment that will skew the results because he, this guard was not instructed to think that way. This guard was instructed to be a guard. He wasn't instructed to increase his inhumane behavior to prove that prisons are inhumane. So right away, we have a valid validity problem. So more tensions rise between the prisoners and the, the guards. And the guards come to Simbardo and they're like, hey, um, what are we supposed to do here? Because, uh, you know, we're just a part of this little experiment. We're just here to make some money. And this, the, the prisoners are getting out of control. And I don't really feel comfortable doing anything. I don't think we're supposed to do anything. And so, so the guards come to Zimbardo and they're, and they're like, uh, what are we supposed to do here? And Zimbardo tells them, look, you've, you've got to establish control here and you've got to crack down and you've got to start breaking the bonds between them. So again, this is, you know, questionable validity because Zimbardo is trying to prove that, 
you can take good people and make them do evil, th- and, and the institution will make them do evil things. But really what we're seeing is Zimbardo is almost directly telling the guards what to do so that the guards will exhibit the, the behavior that will, that will demonstrate his hypothesis. I hope you understand what I'm saying there. It's, it's sort of be like if I, took, if I wanted to demonstrate that Scientology was terrible for you, like Scientology, I don't know, turned you into a, a violent person, let's just say that. Like if I wanted to prove that Scientology, you know, uh, turned you into a violent person, well, I would take a group of people and I would I would assign half of them to be uh, to start down the road of 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 uh, learning Scientology. You know, they go to all the Scientology camps, and then half the people don't. And then when the Scientology people come back to me, and they're just like, uh, so just checking in. And if I were to tell them, look, you, you've got to start being more aggressive here because that's what you're supposed to do. And I'm telling you, if and if you. If you want your money from this experiment, you've got to get more aggressive. Well, then they're going to be more aggressive. And then at the end, uh, I demonstrated that Scientology causes aggressiveness. Uh, that's, it, this whole study is, is ridiculous when you really look at it more closely. So, of course, things get worse because Zimbardo is basically telling the guards to, to ramp it up. And the guards start assaulting the prisoners. The guards really start laying in. They, they hogtie one guy. They, they increase their humiliation. And at this point, some of the prisoners want to get out. They're like, fuck this. It's not worth the money. I want to go home. And many of the prisoners are not allowed to leave, which is just like, huh? So they're, the prisoners... Many of them are made to believe they're, they're in an actual prison at this point. And their egos are being broken down, and they're made to feel terrible about themselves. They're being humiliated. They're separated from their friends and family. And many of the prisoners afterwards said, yeah, I, I was under the impression that there was no way I was going to get out and that I, I was actually in an actual prison. Having said that, they did let some of them out, but it's very complicated. It's, the experiment was only a few days, but a lot of shit went down in that time. So as things start to escalate, my guess is, is that Zimbardo is thinking two different things. One, he's thinking, whoa, I'm getting some pretty provocative results here. I have some awesome video footage that's being recorded of these guards just being just terrible to these, to these prisoners. And my directives toward the guards are not being recorded. So if I put this thing together, it's going to look like the institution caused these guards to be terrible, when in fact it was me that was telling the guards to be terrible. So I'm guessing he's thinking that. I think Zimbardo was like, this is going to be awesome for my career. This is going to be great. But I also think he's starting to worry a little bit about being sued because some of the prisoners are starting to get very upset. So I think he's starting to worry about that. And I also think he's starting to worry about his experiment completely falling apart because the guards are getting a little unruly. The prisoners are getting unruly. Many of the prisoners want to leave. And I'm guessing he's thinking, shit, if this thing 
because if, if all say all the prisoners just stood up and just said, we want to go, let us out and just kept saying, let us out, let us out, or we're going to sue you. He'd have to let him out. And the experiment would fall apart and he wouldn't have any good data and he wouldn't be able to write anything about this other than a paper about how his design sucked or something. And when it comes to research like this, it's important to know that they are very expensive. I mean, think about how many of these young men were participating in this, you know, I don't know, 20, 30 or something, each one of them being paid $1,400. So, you know, right there, you've got like $50,000 just just paying the, the boys. Then you've got all the equipment and the rental of the space and various other things. Well, Zimbardo isn't paying for that himself. Someone else is paying for that, probably the university. And the university doesn't just hand out like $100,000 to anybody. This in today's dollars, by the way. Universities don't just say, yeah, sure, do your experiment. They, they will grant you money uh, only if you make a case for it. And if you have a history of designing a very expensive studies that go nowhere, like this study was about to do, then it's hard to get future funding. You gain a reputation for being uh, a bad investment, essentially. And so my guess is, is that, I don't know this, but my guess is that Zimbardo was really worried about that. He's, he's starting to see the experiment kind of fly out of control. And he's thinking, shit, if I don't, if I don't figure out a way to make this work for my career, funding is going to completely dry up for me, and I'm doomed as a professor if that happens. Okay. So at this point, a colleague of his, another psychologist, stops by and stops by the experiment and talks to Zimbardo. And he said that it looked like it was it wasn't going well. He's like he saw the prisoners and he's like, "Oh boy, this this looks kind of bad." And Zimbardo tells him, "No, no, no. I'm, we're just following protocol. This is this is exactly as what's supposed to happen." So Zimbardo's trying to be like, "No, no, don't don't look over here. Just never mind. Go away." And then the colleague says, "So what's the what's the independent variable? This is an experiment, right? So what's what's the variable that you're in, introducing?" And then Zimbardo, in an interview, he says, "I became upset because I was worried that there was going to be a riot. I had completely lost my identity as a psychologist." So at this point, Zimbardo is saying that because he was the superintendent and the lead site, the lead researcher, but the, the, the superintendent role that he was playing, essentially he was the lead guard, had completely clouded his judgment. And the only thing he was concerned about was keeping the prisoners in line. So he had lost the perspective of, oh, this is an experiment in a university with voluntary you know, participants. He had completely lost that, that identity and that notion and, and was fully engulfed in the identity of the superintendent. And so when this colleague of his comes up to him and says, you know, what's, what's the variable? Zimbardo's like, what are you talking about? I, I, I have a riot on, a potential riot on my hand from these prisoners that I've got I've to take care of. Some of his team reportedly came to Zimbardo. 
the other psychologist on the research team and said, and said, Philip, um, I think we have enough data. I, I think we need to end this experiment because things are getting out of control. And Zimbardo's like, what are you talking about? This is awesome. We got to continue this. And the other psychologist's like, uh, I don't know. And these other psychologists, uh, I'm fairly certain were subordinates of Zimbardo and really looked up to Zimbardo and probably relied on Zimbardo for their careers. You know, he was probably mentoring these other psychologists. I'm not sure about that, but I think that's true. And so again, this is another ethical thing because the only people that are in a position of monitoring Zimbardo's behavior are Zimbardo's subordinates. And so it's, it's not an ethical setup. So things start to get worse. The guards are getting um, even more abusive, emotionally abusive. They hum- this is day four now. They start humiliating the prisoners and making them become romantic with each other. He he makes the the sadistic guard makes the makes the prisoners like kind of like make love to each other in this kind of way, and it's just it's awful. And at this point, Zimbardo's girlfriend she visits. She's one of his his uh, former students, by the way. <laughs> That's just another kind of consideration. But at this point, she's also. A, an instructor at Berkeley. And she stops by and she's outside of the, of the research, right? She just kind of suddenly drops in day four, day five, and, and looks at this experiment and sees this just terribly abusive behavior going on. And it, she's shocked by it. And she tells Zimbardo, what are you doing to these kids? Uh, you got to stop this. This is this is ridiculous. T- stop it. And Zimbardo was like, "No, no, you don't get it, man. I I'm this is really important and I'm really demonstrating something awesome here. This is going to be, you know, a very, you know, revered study one day." And his girlfriend Chris is like, "I don't care about any of that." These prison, these boys, they're being abused. You have to end this now. This is not okay. So at this point, whenever Zimbardo tells a story, because he does, he says, okay, I ended the experiment. But there's a little detail here that I think he often leaves out. And that is, is that it took him like 24 hours more time of abuse to these prisoners before he actually ended the experiment. But he did. He called off the experiment. So instead of two weeks... It was only six days. He, he, he paid the participants the full amount, but it's only six days. Okay. So what happened in the aftermath? Well, there were many interviews immediately after, 10 years later, 20 years later, 30 years later, with the various participants, including Zimbardo himself. And you can go on YouTube and see all these different um, interviews. They're pretty interesting. The sadistic guard, or John Wayne... He, he said, he, he said in an, in an interview, you know, I, now I know what I'm capable of and it hurts. He is reflecting back, watching the video of him just being super sadistic to these prisoners. And he's just like, wow, I, I had no idea I was capable of that, but, um, it's terrible, uh, what I did to those people. One of the prisoners 
he, in an interview afterwards, said that he really felt like he had lost his identity, like he was forgetting who he was as a human being because he had been stripped of all his trappings. He had a dress on and a number. Everyone referred to him as a number. And he felt like it was a real prison. He started to actually have a delusion that it was an actual prison. Now, I will say that in some ways it actually was an actual prison. But, you know, another one of the prisoners said that this study shows that power corrupts. And this study shows that uh, how difficult it is for victims of abuse to stand up for themselves. Because he himself felt as though he was being abused by the prison guards. But he felt powerless to fight back because the system was privileging the guards. And he didn't feel like he had any power to fight back. And so he just gave in. And then the abuse just got worse and worse and worse. And his ego started crumbling more and more and more. And by the end of the, of the you know, experiment after six days, he was letting the prison, the prison guards do anything to him. And so he said he now understands why victims of abuse have a hard time standing up for themselves, which I thought was interesting. Years later, in an interview, Zimbardo would say that the consensus is that the, uh, the participants in the study suffered and that that was unethical of him to have done. He also said it was unethical for him to design this study in such a way that would make people suffer. He also said it was unethical for him to be in that dual role where he's both the superintendent, both you know the boss of the guards, and also the lead researcher. He said that he should have had a colleague run the experiment, and if he, if he was going to be if Zimbardo was going to be the superintendent of the prison, he said I should have had someone else be the lead researcher. And I really love that Zimbardo takes full responsibility. He doesn't blame anybody. He's just like, yeah, it was unethical of me. That was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. And the other experimenters, the other psychologists on the team also said that they had lost perspective and they didn't have a plan for what to do and that they were really caught up in the experiment in a way that they shouldn't have been. Let's take a break. And when we get back, we'll continue. Zimbardo has also said over the years that they learned a lot from this experiment, that the participants themselves learned a lot about themselves, and that Zimbardo has said that it was a very valuable experience for everyone involved. And I kind of agree with this. Afterward, the participants seemed to have learned something, and they seemed to not have regretted that they were a part of it. But it's really hard to say because men are socialized, particularly, you know, we're, we're talking uh, men in 1971, so they're socialized in the 50s. Boys are socialized to not complain and to not say that they have been harmed in any way. And so it's hard to say, you know, so you can imagine some of the participants feeling as though they were harmed, but they want to be manly and not complain. But so it's hard to know. The researchers afterwards determined that none of the participants were permanently harmed 
or had any long-term effects. But the researchers are the ones who are the very people who would be har- would you know have some sort of problem if they did harm the participants, you know? So it's hard to really uh, trust that finding. So the researchers themselves said, yeah, everything was fine. And we evaluated all the participants and they're fine. Everything's fine. Don't worry about it. (laughs) So I I don't know. I'm a little skeptical of that. I mean, maybe it's true, but I'm a little skeptical. Since, Since this time, the experiment made Zimbardo quite famous and he lectures on the abuse of power all the time. Whenever anyone wants to talk about the abuse of power or prisons, they will often call Zimbardo to talk about it. And his central thesis or point in all this is that we like to think that good people can't do bad things, but he asserts that if there's an evil place or an evil institution that has good people in it, those good people will do evil things. And he says that his prison experiment demonstrates that, which I actually don't think that's true. Incidentally, Chris, the uh, professor from Berkeley, who uh, the girlfriend who, you know, said, Zimbardo, you got to stop this. Him, her and Philip got married after a while. They had kids. They're still married today. They're still alive. Zimbardo is 83 now. Okay. So I want to talk about Abu Ghraib. Um, you may remember that from the uh, news stories in the 2000s. It was a, a prison for uh, you know war criminals of some sort. And it's often said that you will see the exact same behavior in, you know. So what happened was these photos leaked to the press and the American people started seeing these photos that were being taken in this prison for Iraqi prisoners. These photos showed the prison guards, including women prison guards, doing terrible, terrible things to these prisoners. They were stripping them naked and taking pictures of them. They were making them lie on top of each other while they were naked. They were dressing them up. They were just doing all these really horrible, humiliating things to them and and then taking pictures of it. And then these pictures got out and the American public were like, how can this happen? These are Americans. We're supposed to be good. We're not supposed to do this sort of thing. This is, this isn't America. We're supposed to be, we're supposed to have ethics and, and whatnot. And so it was this really big scandal. And what, what Zimbardo is saying is that when you put people, when you, when you give people power, that uh, there's a, a series of steps that will occur that will lead them to do evil things. But they only do that if there's no outside uh, oversight. And and it's interesting that he, he points it out. He's like, he, if there's no outside oversight, you eventually will see people do more, you know, more evil, evil things more and more and more. And what he will say is that his prison experiment demonstrated that because the guards were doing evil things. But I say that it's not the guards, it's him, the experiment, the, the participant, the main participant experiment 
what in the experiment was him because he didn't have any outside oversight and he was the perpetrator of the evil. He was the one telling the guards to do evil things or encouraging it. And there was no out, there was no outside intervention. There was no ethics review board. There was no one in power over Zimbardo. And he was the one who was doing the evil things. And until his girlfriend came in and she didn't have any power over him other than the fact that she had, you know, sway with him because she was his girlfriend. That was the, that was the oversight that ended the evil acts that he was doing. And I just find that just to be terribly ironic because he, he will say his experiment proved it, but I'm saying he, the experiment was on him. Even he, he experimented on himself without knowing it <laughs> is the thing. I hope that makes sense. But anyway, after Abu Ghraib came out, George W. Bush and Rumsfeld, they were saying, no, 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 it's, there's nothing wrong with the military. There's nothing wrong with the war in Iraq. There's nothing wrong with the government. We just have a few bad apples who are doing bad things and we'll, we will, you know, we'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. But Zimbardo and many others were saying, no, 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 it doesn't have anything to do with bad apples. These are, these are not bad apples. We've seen this before in other experiments. It's actually the system. When you set up a system that provides people with total power with no outside oversight, because the idea was that Abu Ghraib didn't have much oversight from military, uh, you know, higher ups, so to speak. And so, uh, Zimbardo wrote this piece on the seven processes that will, uh, grease the slippery slope of evil for people. So it, and these are the different, the different kind of things that need to happen in order for you to have guards in Abu Ghraib, um, eventually do really evil things or Nazi uh, guards eventually do evil things. The first step is there needs to be a mindless first small step toward evilness. So it's usually an incremental process toward evil where the first step is, it's just a tiny little step, you know, like in the prison experiment, the, uh, the guards would, would, kind of humiliate the prisoners, but not too bad. Well, you know, so it's, it's not too far away from your moral compass. It's just a little shade off. And so you have to have that first step. You also have to uh, be given the power and encouraged to dehumanize the prisoners. You have to see the others as not human. That's an important thing, because if they're not human, then your morals don't really apply to them. You also need to be anonymous. So that's what, in the prison experiment, you have those uniforms and those mirror sunglasses. It makes you anonymous. It gives you, if you have a uniform, it's not you anymore. You're the uniform. And anyone out there who's worn a uniform, you know what that feels like. It's sort of like Halloween, too. If you, when you put on a, a costume, it kind of distances you from your behavior a little bit. That's why a lot of people go crazy on Halloween is because there's less of you involved in that. So if you put people in military uh, uniforms, presumably that provides them with this sort of anonymity. 
There also needs to be a diffusion of personal responsibility, meaning that if you give guards the uh, system such that they're not really responsible for what they're doing, that maybe their superiors are ultimately responsible, then the guards will start to uh, go down the slippery slope of evil. Essentially, it's like, well, I don't know, the higher-ups told me to get control of you, so what am I going to do? Whereas if you're the top of the line, if you're the top dog, then this the buck kind of stops with you, and so the idea is, is that your moral compass should kick in more if you're the one in control. Also, the guards have to have a blind obedience to authority. So the the guards have to look at the authority with total, you know, without question. You have to say, okay, well, I'm just following orders. I'm just I'm just doing what I'm told. So it's this blind obedience. So essentially what Zimbardo is saying is that as in his prison experiment and as in Abu Ghraib and as in Nazi Germany, when you have a social system that comprises of these various different elements, you're going to see good people do evil things. And the idea is, is that you need to set up systems so that they don't produce this effect, which basically you need to have oversight. You need some unbiased outside uh, group of people occasionally oversee what's happening in these systems to make sure that, that they don't start going down this road. Because whenever you have a group of people who are in power of another group of people, abuses will eventually start happening. And again, we can see this happen throughout history. I mean, look at some police cultures. We can certainly see evil behavior occurring there, right? Not all police cultures, but we can certainly see some groups of police uh, cultures, some, some you know, groups of regional police. We can certainly see that they slowly start edging their way toward evil behavior, not because they're evil people, but because the system is set up to allow them a certain freedom where they just slowly start gravitating toward that evil behavior. So it's not the individuals. It's not bad apples. It's the system. And that's a critical thing we need to realize. As a systemic thinker myself, family therapists are notorious for thinking systemically. Uh, I'm, I'm constantly browbeating my trainees to think systemically. We have to stop thinking of people as individuals. We have to see them as part of a system. We are we like to, as Americans we like to think of ourselves as free will people. It's like, well, no one can tell me what to do. I'm 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 my own man. Well, no you're not. You're not your own man. You're a part of a culture. Everything you do is in response to your surroundings. And you're socialized to do many of the things. And so all, all the you know, people who would like to think of themselves as nice people, in all likelihood, if we put you into a system uh, like some police system that was already doing evil things, in all likelihood, you'd start doing evil things too. Because mainly there's no oversight there's just no oversight. Many police systems have zero oversight in America. And that's why you see abuses happen. And what we're looking at police, we're like, oh, we need training. We need this and that. No, 
They have training. Uh, oh, we need to get rid of the bad apples. Uh, sure, but no, that's not going to solve the problem. What we need is outside oversight. We need an outside agency that has power over the police. That's the only way this is going to stop. And that's what Zimbardo is trying to say. He doesn't say police force, but I'm applying it to that. I've also seen this in schools. I've seen teachers, administrators, and staff start treating kids like like they're prisoners, start doing terrible things to them. I mean, not like horrible, horrible things. And not all. uh, This is actually isolated. But I've seen this personally. I've seen, I've I've been around groups of teachers and administrators, and when no kids are around, the way that they talk about the kids, I'm just appalled. I'm like, my God, you hate these kids. You hate all of them. And I understand they want to, you know, com- complain. They want to get support. They want to vent. But the but then they turn around and treat the kids terribly as well. And they they you know they yell at them and not listen to them. And you know, not all teachers obviously, but I've seen this happen. Partially because they're in some school systems, there's no oversight. There's there's no one from the outside coming in and saying, "Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa," you know, let's let's calm down here. Your attitude toward these kids is not going to help. Okay. So let's finish with the ethics involved. So the ethical guidelines for research on humans was not fully developed when the prison experiment, Stanford prison experiment was happening in 1971. However, I contend that Zimbardo should have known better. I'm guessing if this experiment happened today, the entire university would be sued out of business, but not back then. So federal rules were established in 1991, 20 years later, partially in response to the Stanford prison experiment, in which violations of the ethical standards, the the regulations, will lead to actual penalties. So they're not just guidelines. You can actually be penalized. So it's mandatory that... uh, Institutional Review Board, or an IRB, oversee the research, and uh, it's particularly when it involves human subjects. You must get prior IRB approval for the protocol. And IRBs are very powerful. As a person who's done research myself, I can tell you that an IRB can ruin your life, and any researcher knows this to be true, because you could spend, I don't know, a couple years designing a study and then you submit it to your IRB and they're like, Nope, that's not going to work. And you've got to just start all over again. (laughs) In some instances, sometimes you just have to tweak one, one or two things, but sometimes it means you have to completely scrap your, they have the power essentially to ruin your, your career in some ways, which is good. You know, they should have that power. And in the past they did not have that power. So let's look at the individual regulations according to the federal rules established in 1991. You must gain pre-approval from an independent group who reviews the protocol, or the IRB. So with regards to Zimbardo, I'm guessing he did not do that. Number two, you must follow the approved protocol. Again, my guess is is that he didn't really have an approved protocol, so how could he follow it? But even the protocol that seemed to be in place, it seemed very loose, they didn't seem to have a plan uh, for what happens if the guards get violent, what happens if the prisoners get violent, what, what happens if a prisoner asks to leave. It, it seems as though they had a very loose protocol that 
that didn't answer any of those questions. Number three, you must gain informed consent. You must gain informed consent. You must inform your participants about what the experiment is going to entail, and then you must gain their consent. They must sign, they must be informed, and then they must sign in the dotted line. So in this, in this prison experiment, the participants did not seem to know what they were getting into, and many seemingly would have opted out if they knew they were going to be treated that way. Number four, you must allow participants to pull out at any time without any consequences. Clearly, this was not the case in the Stanford prison experiment. It was very clear that the prisoners felt as though they could not pull out. So you really need to allow participants to pull out. Number five, deception should be avoided within reason. So a little deception, okay, depending on what the RB says, but you really should try to avoid dis- deceiving your, your participants in psychological studies. And there, there was deception in a certain way. The, they were, I think they were deceived in terms of what they were getting into. I think if you would have asked them prior to the experiment, what do you think you're getting into? And the prisoners would have been like, oh, I think I'm just going to you know, lounge around in a prison cell for two weeks. I don't know. But they probably did not know that they were going to be routinely tortured throughout the day and, and made to feel, you know, and made to do things that were horrible. Number six, when we see harm as, as researchers, when we see harm to our participants, we should try to reduce or end the harm immediately. So did Zimbardo do this? No. He saw harm happening and he did nothing. And then when his girlfriend said, hey, harm is happening, you need to stop that, he still waited a complete day in order to end his experiment. So unethical there. And number seven, last but not least, we must avoid dual relationships. Zimbardo himself admitted that he did not avoid the dual relationship. He was both the lead experimenter who was in charge of everyone, the participants, his colleagues, blah, blah, blah. And he was also the prison superintendent. And he was so wrapped up in being the superintendent that he forgot that he was in charge of an experiment. He was both the boss of the experiment and he was the boss of the, the, you know, the guards. He was you know, both in charge of the experiment and in the experiment. And you, we need to avoid those uh, relationships, those kinds of setups, because our judgment can get clouded, as it did with Zimbardo. I mean, I'm just wondering what would have happened if his girlfriend hadn't, you know, basically, I, I'm, I'm, what, what happened, I forgot, to, I forgot to mention this, his girlfriend told Zimbardo, hey, if you don't end this experiment, I'm breaking up with you. That's what she said. She's because they got in a big fight about it. So, you know, she's she's like, you got to stop this. And Zabar like, you don't get it, man. I, this is an awesome experiment. I, I'm 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 doing big stuff here. Shut up, go home. And his girlfriend is like, um, okay, well, let me put it to you this way: if you don't end the experiment, we're done. Because I don't want to be with someone who would will do this to people. And then Zabardo's like, uh oh, okay, well, let's end the experiment. So it's just it's just a wonder what would have happened if his girlfriend hadn't given him that ultimatum, where would the experiment have gone? Uh, you know, uh, in my, there's a certain part of me that thinks the experiment would still be happening and he'd still be, he, he would have started a little cult or something. Cause if you just look at where they were at day five and go forward to day 14, it it's just the mind 
it, it just it's it boggles the mind where they where they where it could have gone because it was already just terribly abusive and terribly um, brainwashing to these kids by this point. It's just interesting to imagine. Okay, so just to review the seven things here, you must gain pre-approval from an independent group who reviews the protocol. Number two, you must follow that approved protocol. Number three, you must gain informed consent from your participants. Number four, you must allow participants to pull out at any time without any consequences. Number five, deception should be avoided within reason. Number six, when we see harm, we should try to reduce or end that harm immediately. And number seven, we must avoid dual or multiple relationships. And these are all uh, regulations and ethical guidelines that Zimbardo violated. And I think he admits that, which I say good for him. All right. What's the final word? The final word is that I really hope that the prisoners are not permanently damaged by this. I really hope. I have a hard time believing they're not permanently damaged, but I really hope that they were okay. Because this experiment actually provides us with a lot of fodder for for thinking about not only what it what systems of power do to people in terms of uh, leading them to evil like in Abu Ghraib and Nazi Germany and other places not only is this an experiment that really highlights that for us and says hey we have to look at our systems here and we have to have oversight for systems but it also provides a an, a, a very famous a filmed example of how to not do research. <laughs> it's interesting that this this study is both highly relevant and also an example of terrible research. <laughs> it, it's just a, it's fascinating. Uh, it's also just fascinating to the general public. I mean, look at all the documentaries. Like I said, they made a movie recently with Ezra Miller in it. I met Ezra Miller, by the way. And South by Southwest, I think I said that on the podcast before, I hugged him because I loved him so much in uh, Perks of Being a Wallflower. Um, he's going to be the new Flash in all the Batman movies. Anyway, so uh, I, I'm, I'm glad that I went down this, this rabbit hole. A patron asked me to do that. Uh, if you haven't already out there listening, if you haven't become a patron, please do so. Go to patreon.com. That's patreon.com, and you'll get access to all of our premium episodes in which I frequently will do other sorts of deep dives like this one. Well, that does it for this episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me. If you want to email me, email me at contact at psychologyinseattle.com. If you want to become a part of the Facebook group for fans, it's called Psychology in Seattle Fans. It's on Facebook, Psychology in Seattle Fans. It's where all the fans can communicate with each other. All right. Well, that does it. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it and stay out of unethical experiments because you deserve that too.